We are continuing in 2 Timothy. So if you have your Bibles with you, you can turn or tap to 2 Timothy chapter 3. Uh, at the table in the back of the room, we've got some little paperback Bibles as well if you want to grab one of those if you do not have one. But 2 Timothy chapter 3 is where we're at as we continue in our summer series that we've been calling Endure. And really today, we're kind of in the middle of like a mini series inside of the series in Apostle Paul, his second letter to Timothy, this young pastor, where this little mini series in the series, this little mini section of the letter, he's calling out some particular obstacles to an enduring faith, to a lasting relationship with Jesus, an enduring community that's doing that together. Paul is calling Timothy to that over the letter and over last week and then today, He's identifying some of the major obstacles that get in the way of that, the the barriers, the inhibitors to an enduring faith. And this is so helpful for us because in discipleship or walk with Jesus, as with any other big endeavors in our life, whether that's continued education, your dream job, marriage, or even your New Year's resolutions, no one ever sets out to give up. Like no one is like from the beginning, you know, maybe the beginning of the race. And they're like, so I'm thinking about halfway there. I'm just going to give up. That's, you know, when I get about, that's when I'll end. Or we don't get, you know, I'll give this thing a semester and, you know, I'll pay all the money for this thing. And then I'll, you know, bail right the day after, you know, my refundable deposit comes back on the class or whatever. Nobody, you know, sets out to give up. And yet what, what happens so often in our lives as we get moving with the highest goals in front of us, obstacles get in the way, specifically ones that we weren't anticipating or expecting, and those over time chip away at our resilience, at our endurance. And so we then start looking for the escape door. We're done. We look for the bail. How do we hit the eject cord? How do we pull out? How do we get out of this? Because we can't continue anymore. The obstacles seem just too much. And often it's because of broken expectations that we had going into the thing. And so there's a strange gift that happens where at the beginning of those new major endeavors, we have a friend who's kind of, you know, maybe a realist, we'll call them on a good day, maybe a pessimist on a bad day, who sits us down, not to tear us down, but to, but to put the, the, the reality of it all in front of us, to properly set our expectations. After 10 years of marriage, this is what I feel like all of my pastoral premarital counseling is right now. It's like we're at the 10-year mark where it's like, it's, incre- it's, it's awesome, and it's the, some of the most difficult work in marriage that we've had to do so far. And so now whenever I sit down doing premarital with, you know, young, and they're, we're fresh and in love, I'm like, this is going to be brutal. Like, it's going to be the hardest thing you ever do. You guys love each other. You're going to hate each other and love each other at the same time. And they're like, oh, okay, like, what am I signing up for? And and the whole point is, I'm trying to go, man, let's get the expectations properly set so that when you find yourselves 10, 5, 7 years in or or maybe in a new job or in the middle of the semester, you don't hit the eject because you go, oh, no, this is part of it. I, I, I think sometimes most of our endurance is we just think that we're going through something that this is not what it's meant to be. And so that's what Paul's doing here in the middle of his letter is he's identifying some of the obstacles to an enduring faith for Timothy so that as Timothy goes through them, Timothy isn't going, it must be going, it's all going wrong. I got to get out of here. He's trying to properly set his expectations for not just his, his life with Jesus, but also pastoring this church in the city of Ephesus. So with that being said, would you join me in standing if you're able as we read from God's word this morning? 2 Timothy chapter 3. Paul, continuing and detailing the obstacles to an enduring faith, writes, But understand this, that in the last days there will come times of difficulty. 
For people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful. Everybody, all the parents are like nudging their kids right now. (laughs) Disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness, but denying its power. Avoid such people. For among them are those who creep into households and capture weak or vulnerable women, burdened with sins and led astray by various passions, always learning and never able to arrive at a knowledge of the truth. Just as Janus and Jambres opposed Moses, so these men also opposed the truth, men corrupted in mind and disqualified regarding the faith. But they will not get very far, for their folly will be plain to all, as was that of those two men. Let's pray. Uh, Father, uh, we stand before us with a, uh, just a list, a, a laundry list of um, God, these avenues and aspects of disorder and brokenness of, of what the scriptures call sin. And so God, in the midst of all that, it, we, it can cause us to put up barriers and blockers or maybe we turn our attention to others as we come to this text. God, my prayer for all of us today and even for myself is that we wouldn't look at anything in this passage as being about someone else, um, but that the main work would be calling for us to look uh, within our hearts, that, that what he says about false teachers and these, these imposters within the church, that we wouldn't be looking at other churches in the city of Los Angeles, we would look at our own. God, that you've called us to have a, a perspective, a, a looking for these things within ourselves. And so we pray today that we would, um, God, avoid the safety of our excuses and defenses and allow your word to work through your spirit. Come Holy Spirit, we pray. Amen. We'll go ahead and be seated. The greatest obstacle to endurance is not out there, but in here. The greatest obstacle to an enduring faith is not someday, but today. Now, we might think just the opposite is true as we look at verse 1, where Paul talks about the last days, there will come times of difficulty. And we begin to think of, you know, weird left behind apocalyptic books and movies and the like. But as we survey the New Testament and Paul's use of the word, the last days, what he is getting at, along with all the New Testament authors when they use this, is not some future day, but every day that is in between the resurrection, the ascension of Jesus, the sending of the Holy Spirit, and his return. The last days are all of that, the past 2,000 years, are what the, for the New Testament imagination, for the writers of Scripture, this is the last days. And so what that means is the time of difficulty that this passage is talking about is not some future time, in the, you know, when the Antichrist is going to rise up. It's right now, right here. This is the time of difficulty. This is when endurance is difficult. The time of difficulty for enduring is not some future moment that we can either, you know, prep for or we can put off. You're presently in it. You woke up in the last days today. And so the greatest obstacle to endurance is not someday, but today. And similarly, it's not out there, but in here. Just like we might want to read this list and this passage as being sometime in the future. Similarly, we might want to read this list and we, we think about it, you know, it's our, you know, our coworker or our neighbor. It's, you know, certainly not me and it's certainly not the people gathered in this room. 
But in verse five, Paul shows us that that is not who he's talking about. Verse five, at the end and climax of the list, it is those who have the appearance of godliness. This presence, this story, these vices, these sins, Paul's not talking about out there. He's talking about in here. He's not talking about out there, but in here. You see, the greatest obstacle to an enduring faith is not out there, but in here. It is not, you know, if I was to ask some of you on the way in today, what do you think is the greatest obstacle to your enduring faith? You staying and following Jesus, maybe you, you know, becoming one. Most of us would use external things as the markers of what those obstacles are. And Paul wants to be very clear here. The main thing that's going to get in the way of you following Jesus for the long haul is not something out in the city. It's not something out externally. It's something internally in here. Similarly, for our church as a community, what will keep us from making it the long haul as a community, having a, you know, there's these, you know, churches in our city, hundreds of years old, what will keep us from having that kind of a story is not the external pressures that we face, but the internal issues that we don't deal with here. The greatest obstacle to an enduring faith is not out there, but it's in here. It's the obstacle within, within our hearts and within our community. And so at the end of the passage in verse 9, to contrast the idea of an enduring faith, what does Paul give us in verse 9 when he says, they will not get very far? You could argue, Paul, that's the opposite of an enduring faith. (laughs) They will not get very far. And last week in 2.15, when Paul talked and called for Timothy and the Spirit through him to us to present ourselves as a worker approved by God, in 3 verse 8, what does Paul talk about but a Faith that's disqualified, not approved, but disqualified, not approved, but counterfeit, but illegitimate, an empty faith. You see, the obstacle within, that what blocks us from an enduring faith, from a long haul faithfulness to Jesus is not an enduring faith, but it's, it's substitute, an empty faith, an empty faith. And so if we return back to the beginning, or I guess you could say the end of the list, excuse me, we find Paul then give a definition of what an empty faith is. What is Paul talking about when he talks about the opposite of an enduring faith? When Paul talks about the obstacle within, when Paul talks about the main thing that we need to focus on and deal with if we're to have a lasting relationship and following of Jesus, in verse five, Paul writes, they have the appearance of godliness, but they deny its power. They have the appearance of godliness, but they are without godliness's power. They have an outward show of religion without the inward reality of the Spirit's working. They have religion without transformation. They have faith without works. They have appearance without power. Now, some of this still might be a little bit unhelpful or confusing language for you. Church Father Chrysostom, he helpfully uh, gives us an image of what Paul's getting at when he talks about something that has the appearance without the power in talking about a statue. Uh, behind me is a little copper statue that I walk by every day on the way to work through the Culver Steps. It's the statue of Harry Culver. Harry Culver, there he is with his little newspaper. And so here, when you look at Harry Culver, appearance but no power. It's not Harry Culver. We all agree to that, yes, but it looks like him. He has ears, but they don't hear. He has eyes, but he doesn't see. He has a mouth, but he doesn't talk. Arms, holding a newspaper, but he's not reading and flipping the pages. Legs, but he's not moving. He has form, but no life. He has appearance without power. Paul here is saying the great danger for you is a a fossilization of your heart. A loss of the power of the life of godliness, but still keeping some kind of appearance of it. 
So the question then emerges, how is a living faith turned into powerless stone? Like Han Solo, Harrison Ford, who turned 80 this week, I cannot imagine. And they're filming another Indiana Jones with him right now. It's like, it's gonna be great, Andrew. It's not. Uh, why do I talk about Han Solo? Oh, what, 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 what freezes our faith in carbonite? You know, to use Empire Strikes Back. What, what does this to a living faith? What, where does this come from? If you have your Bibles open, look at the beginning of the list in verse two, where what are the first two markers of an empty faith outside of the gate? Lovers of self and lovers of money. You you know, underline, circle, whatever you do in your Bibles. And at the very end, at the end of verse four, right before he talks about appearance of godliness but denying its power, what are the two main issues right there as well? Lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. And then even right towards the middle, not loving good. At the beginning, the end, in the middle of an empty faith, binding them all together is all about your love. Loving self, loving money, loving pleasure rather than God. Loving these things and not loving good. Good not being like, you know, I love the ideal of good, but rather love of the common good, the public good. You could say love for others. You see, rather than a love of God and a love of the good of others, what Jesus called the great commandment, what an empty faith grows into, the fossilization that occurs is this kind of orbital decay that happens around our souls and our hearts. Meant to have a life of love revolving around God and others that over time there's a decay that occurs and we begin to turn, as Martin Luther would say, we curve in on ourselves. And over the process, what ends up happening is that through money and that through pleasure, God and others merely become accessories or tools in that inward turning. And so we may have the appearance of godliness, but God, let, it, let there be no joking, is merely a side piece, is merely an accessory to, at the end of the day, the prime orbit of my heart, which is myself. Similarly, my love for others is merely an accessory, a side angle to my love of pleasure, my love of money. In the words of Augustine, another church father, he wrote and spent most of his life really dealing with this main issue, but to give it in one line, he said, the essence of sin is disordered love. When you think about what's going on within sin or is a moment we're gonna get to the list itself, what's going on within the dynamic? What's leading to all of that, these sin issues within the world? Augustine would say the main issue is disordered love. Your loves are out of order. Your loves and priorities are, are, are the orbital you know, decay is the only thing. There's a falling out and a disordering of where proper things ought to be. And so things like money and things like pleasure, which are good gifts to be stewarded well, when they become into the place of God or others and those get pushed to the side, ultimately ourselves being at the top, this is what moves and motivates most of the sin in your life and within our world. And so then, the greatest obstacle to an enduring faith is the Medusa of me. The Medusa in the mirror that turns us into stone. And I realize the Greek mythology, Medusa, you look at snake-haired lady and you look at her and you turn to stone. The great fossilization of your faith comes through your own focus on yourself. This is what will do it. It is self-love, the religion of our city, that turns faith to stone. And so then that list of 19 characteristics and sins, these markers that Paul gives are not for the sake of you sit down and grade yourself on where, you know, like we're reading through it and like, Roz, I'm reading through it. You're going eight out of 19. That's not awful, right? Like I'm not, I'm not at the tipping point. 
The whole point is not for you to judge yourself, but the presence of any of these within your life and heart, and they are there to be indicators on the dashboard of your loves, shining and calling for you to pay attention to what is out of place here. And so as I dive into these, and I'm gonna detail these kind of very quickly, the whole point here is not for you to grade yourself, but to find with each and every single one of these a prompt for prayerful consideration and repentance to ask, where is this, if this is present within my heart and myself, what's disordered in here? What's out of place that's causing these things to come? So let's look at the list and we'll move quickly through this. Paul says right after loving self, immediately comes the love of money, which Paul in his first letter to Timothy would say is the root of all kinds of evil. And whether that love of money is the pleasure in spending or the safety in saving or the greed in gaining, a love of money, Paul says, comes right after a love of self as a disordered life that flows from a disordered love. He continues by moving into then pride, an undue sense of one's importance, an arrogance where you view yourself as smarter and better than others. That's not anything we deal with in Los Angeles. Abusive, that is cutting and taking advantage of others. That is all the way to physical abuse to what we do with our words. Disobedient to their parents. For the kids today, we had a couple classrooms that we didn't have volunteers for. I'm talking to you guys, but for all of us. You know, it's interesting in rabbinic tradition with the disobedient to your parents and honoring your father and mother in the Ten Commandments, they regularly took that as to mean yes and amen, your actual parents, but with that, any authority structures in your life. Disobedient to them. He continues to be ungrateful that nothing is ever good enough for them. They live with a constant state of dissatisfaction. They're unholy, the pursuit not of holiness, but they live however they want. They are unloving, Literally, they were without a heart. They lack empathy. They are unappeasable or unforgiving. They cannot and will not be reconciled with others. They are slanderous. They gossip. The word there is uh, in Greek, diablos. It's the same word for the devil. They speak the native tongue of the enemy, and they bring his venom into the church community. They tear down people behind their backs. They bring criticism against others when they're not present. They use back channels of relationships to talk trash about others as opposed to being a part of the solution. They're content to sit at a distance and pull down others. They're without self-control. They live with instantaneous need for everything to be available all of the time. They can't wait for anything. They're brutal. They're violent. They're harsh. They're angry and irritable. They're treacherous. It's literally the word for a traitor. They betray the loyalty of those that give it to them. They get information, someone sharing something with them, and then they go and they share it with others. They're reckless, they're rash, they're careless of how their words and actions affect others. They're swollen with conceit. He ends where he began, love of self and proud. And they love pleasure. Whether we take that all the way to the sensual, like sexual pleasure, to they're just lazy, they take the path of least resistance in their life. They're looking for the pleasure and the avoidance of pain at all costs. And so it leads them just to find the easiest route. Paul says, these are the markers of the empty faith. Any of these present within your life and in mine this week are meant to be indicator lights on the dashboard of your loves, that something is out of order here. And the invitation for you and for me is to ask the question, if this is there, one of these is here, where's my love out of order? What's the system that's happened here? What's led to this? And with these being the markers of an empty faith, as it can be translated in verse five, Paul says, avoid such people can simply just be 
translated, avoid these things. And so Paul could, this is where the tension of the text comes. Is Paul talking about in that list particular people to avoid or avoid these things in yourself and also anyone who carries them as well? I think the former is the one, the latter is the one that that Paul's getting at. He's calling for us to look within our hearts for these things. And as we look for them in our hearts, we're also then avoiding those things, not just within us, but also within the church community, which is what he moves into as he continues in verse six. Because what he's trying to say is just as an empty faith threatens your endurance, that same empty faith, that fossilization is like a plague within the church community. That it festers and it grows as a bacterial infection that grows within the life of the community and brings death. And so he says, avoid it. As he continues in verse six, he begins to now describe the sort of people he's talking about. He talks about those who are on a trajectory of this empty faith. Verse eight, using language of corrupted. They weren't always this way. That there was some movement, a trajectory they were on. In verse 13, what we're gonna look at uh, next week in passing, Paul talks about them as moving from bad to worse. That they have become deceived and they're now deceiving others. But the key to all of this is they're not outside of the church community. They have the appearance of godliness. They are within the community. They're part of the church. They're identifying publicly as followers of Jesus. And so in their deception within the community, they are opposing the truth and they're threatening the church. Verse six, he talks about them like a serpent creeping in at the margins of the community, seeking to find uh, who they might capture or the languages captivate. And specifically, Paul details this account. He's remembering this capturing and captivating of what he says is weak women. Now, brief aside here. Weak women, first and foremost, Paul is not talking about all women. This is not Paul's little moment of like, and by the way, women, like, y'all are awful. You know, like, you guys are just dummies waiting to be, you know, gullible and pulled aside. Paul's talking about a particular instance with particular women within the church. And it seems, based off a reading of 1 Timothy's first letter, that this is, there's a, there's a group of women in the church that this is just like a recurring issue for them. And so what he's talking about is weak, or it can be translated vulnerable or little. Ada Bessacone Spencer, she makes a really good argument that I'm still chewing on, that the word in Greek can be translated as attractive, that it's actually beautiful women in the church, that these guys are coming in and like scouring the community to find pretty ladies to woo and pull aside. But with all this being said, these women, I I still think are likely new believers, as Paul goes on to describe in verse six, that the reason why these uh, empty faith imposters are able to captivate these women is they are burdened by sins, led astray by various passions. And verse seven, always arriving, but never able, always learning, but never able to arrive at knowledge. That These are immature women. And once again, hear me, Paul's not talking about women in the church in general, a particular subset of these women right now in, this, in, his, in Paul's church, Timothy's church, excuse me. And so what Paul's recounting here is a very real story that Timothy's probably dealing with in real time in the church community where these imposters, these guys claiming the name of Jesus, are preying on women in the church, bringing deceitful ideas that are preying upon their disordered desires so that they can kind of, you know, woo them, date them, uh, you know, kids in the room. You get the idea. And so this is what Paul's going, man, avoid these people. Just because these guys are identifying with the name of Jesus and they have the appearance of godliness does not mean you can trust them. Timothy, your job is to pastor and steward the community within you. And there are these vulnerable, you know, young Christian women, whatever language we want to use here, that they're coming into specifically to pray upon. And so you need to avoid, turn these men away. 
Now, the thing is, why I, I'm certain that Paul's not identifying this as just women in general. I have seen this play out time and time again. I've seen it happen with the gender swapped, and I've seen it even in a non-sensual way as little cliques form within a church community in which everybody accepts and celebrates the empty faith of one another. And they just become this little black hole towards a further and further fossilization of one another's faith as opposed to the opposite of what the church community should be moving further and further towards the power of godliness. And so what Paul is saying is you look for this as, as, as much as you're looking within your own heart for these empty faith markers, you need to keep an eye out for people within the church that might be operate, that they might be corrupted to use Paul's language in verse eight. Paul then talks about why the danger of these men, why they're so dangerous, why they're able to get by and pull this kind of thing off. In verse eight, he likens these men to the palace magicians in Pharaoh's court in the Exodus story. If you've ever read the book or maybe you've seen the movie, the 90s kids in here, Prince of Egypt. These two individuals named in Jewish writings as Janus and Jambres, what Paul's referring to them are, or in the Prince of Egypt, Hotep and Hui, voiced by Steve Martin and Martin Short. <laughs> Only heretics in the building. It's, I'm, it's, I'm writing it right now. I'm developing it. Get dad jokes. So the point of the reference here, what Paul's getting at in talking about Hotep and Hui and talking about Janus and Jembrus, these, these court magicians, is in the story, Moses comes and he's going, man, let, you know, let, my peop- you know, let my people go. He tells Pharaoh, you are enslaving these people, brutal, you murder, it's time to let them go. And as a display of the power of the God of Israel, you've got these miracles that happen. You've got the staff, snake, you've got the Nile turning into blood. And at each turn, you've got Hotep and Hui, you've got Janus and Jembris, who come up and they repeatedly come up with these knockoff acts that then basically um, set Pharaoh's need for repentance and the deliverance of Israel from slavery aside. They have this counterfeit magic, these, this, this, this appearance without the power, able to concoct an image of the power of God, but completely devoid of him. All the while keeping Pharaoh from repentance and the freedom from slavery for Israel's people. And so what Paul does here is he's calling back the, this image to Timothy's mind, comparing their counterfeit, their mimicry of the power of God and their opposition to the truth to these empty faith imposters who are creeping in and along the community. All of it to say, all that glitters is not gold, Timothy. Everyone who says Jesus' name is not necessarily him. Everyone that's sitting, their butt is in a seat on Sunday is not necessarily walking in a genuine faith. Everyone who's got their hands raised in worship, everyone who might be saying amen to the prayers, they may have Bible memorized, they may be in leadership in the church, they might be giving sermons, they might even, in the case of Janice and Jambres, be able to concoct some form of miracles, and yet these are not the markers of the faithfulness that Jesus is after in his church community. Look for the marks of an empty faith, the, the, the list of 19 that we saw. Look for the absence of the power of godliness. And he says, their folly will be plain to all. If you take your eyes off their gifting and the power and the platform and who they are and you see and you ask the questions of, of character, if you ask the questions of fruit of the spirit, they will reveal themselves for the imposters that they are. I mean, I can just tell you, this is so, so relevant within the work of the American church right now. With leaders within the church, either bringing false doctrine like we locked it last week, or just they're, just, they're, they're these sorts of people. 
but because of gifting, skill set, miracles, they got the smile and they got the TV show, they got the podcast and the book deals. We eat, they're the influencers. They got the, nobody reads books anymore. They got the TikTok. We just like eat this stuff up and we actually don't realize what they're, what, what's wiring within us and what it's doing to us. Paul says, stop looking for these markers of fame and prestige and gifting and skill. Look for character. Who are they? Are the fruit of the Spirit? Is the power of godliness at work within them? He says, look for it. Their folly will be plain to all. And so in this passage with all of these big, you know, 19 list things, we're talking about, you know, abuse within the church and all these, you know, corrupting leaders. What in the world? What's interesting is Paul only has two commands in the passage today. Only two commands for Timothy and through the Spirit to us today. And it is in verse one, understand this. And at the end of verse, uh, midway through uh, verse five, avoid such people. The two verbs that are commands in the passage are understand and avoid. Know and keep clear of these sorts of people. The greatest obstacle to an enduring faith is not out there, but in here. It is in our hearts individually and in the church collectively. So understand that and then avoid anything that would rewire your loves, disorder your loves further than what is already necessary. So to begin where we just were in, in understanding and avoiding this within the church, within our church community, the first is just to understand and know not everybody who claims Jesus is a, is a genuine follower. Not everybody who comes in and, and, and goes through the rhythms and the motions is actually convinced and, and moving and motivated by the power of godliness. And there will be people who will seek to use Paul's words, creep and captivate. And part of being a pastor and a part of the church is just to expect this as part of the life of the church. And then knowing that that's going to happen to avoid such people. Literally to be, can be translated as turning them away or to have nothing to do with them. Now this brings up a lot of big questions now because you're, you're, we're all going, um, Ryan, we all checked off on some of the 19. So do we all just avoid each other right now? Like, okay, I guess I can't be with you. You can't be with me. Does this mean we just kick people out of our discipleship group the moment they're, conf- that's the whole point of a discipleship group hopefully is actually confessing that we're working through this stuff. I think there's a beautiful uh, framework for this that Jesus himself gives us in Matthew 18. He says, if you see this present as a pattern within someone and there's a lack of confession and repentance, he says, you talk to them. Go, ask in a posture of love, but trying to understand. Hey, help me understand what's going on. I see this pattern in the way that you talk to your wife, the way that you treat your kids, the way that you, right, I, I see this. You keep, you know, taught bringing this thing up. I've just noticed that this is going on here. Can you just help me understand what, what your experience and your journey is in that? And if it's defensive, if it's skating, or if there's maybe a surface level kind of apology or you know, giving over, but then it continues as a pattern, Paul says, or Jesus, excuse me, says, go and talk to them again, this time bringing one or two other people who know them. This is, again, why our discipleship groups are great. You've got that built into the community now. But to bring one or two others have the conversation again. If it continues, then pastors, we get involved and we go, okay, we're gonna have another conversation. And then if it's still defensive and continuing, then Jesus says, you put them out of the community. And you do this, one, for the sake of the endurance of the church, like a tumor getting it out of the life of the community, but similarly for their own sake. Paul picks up on it when he says that this might be like a cold plunge to their system, awakening their heart to the reality that I've been just moving in this, pretending that this is genuine following Jesus. 
And now I've had three to four of my closest friends and my pastors all going, this isn't it. And I'm still going forward in this. The hope is to shake them awake. But even that won't shake them awake. You know, in conversations I've had about these sorts of things, it, it comes down to like, you know, playing soccer and somebody shows up with a baseball bat and they're swinging at the ball with the baseball bat. You're, you're here to play a different sport. Like we're here, we're trying to follow the, the power of godliness and it's evident you don't want that. So I don't know why you keep coming to play the game. It seems like you want to play baseball. And so with all love, go play baseball. We'll be here when you're ready to, to enter back into the game of the power of godliness and f- following Jesus. But it just seems you don't want that right now. And that's, that breaks our heart, but that's your decision. But we're not going to let you continue to keep calling this soccer because what it does is it's hurting others and it's keeping you from what we've been called to. This is similarly picked up by Paul in his other uh, letter just after 2 Timothy to Titus, another young church pastor, uh, in Titus 3, verse 10, where he does the same thing. If you've got a rhythm of these sorts of things, warn them once, then twice, then have nothing to do with them. Do you see in both of these that the common thing is that it's never a, a one-stop, you know, somebody was, you know, rash or whatever, Somebody was disobedient to their parents. And so it's like, avoid them, turn them away. There's repeated opportunities for repentance. And upon repentance, upon confession and moving back towards the way of Jesus, then okay, then the case is dropped. And then we, we walk together as brothers because repentance is part of the, that's, that's, that's what this whole thing is all about, is our daily turning back over to Jesus. And so repentance then becomes not us not having any of these things in our lives, but repentance and confession. These become the mark of a genuine follower of Jesus rather than the imposter. So the thing that we're holding one another to is not perfection, but a commitment to the power of godliness and repentance within our lives. That's what we're looking for. Because what we want, once again, is the power of godliness at work within us, a reversal of this passage. This is really fun to do this week. You should do it yourself and find out what words you do with, but these are the ones I came up with. You'll see behind me. It's a reversal of Paul's list. This is the sort of community we're going for here. For people will be self-giving, generous, humble, honoring, encouraging, obedient to their parents, grateful, holy, tender-hearted, forgiving, honest, self-controlled, gentle, loving, good, faithful, thoughtful, brimming with love, lovers of God rather than lovers of pleasure, having both the appearance and the power of godliness. Walk alongside these kinds of people. This is the sort of community we're going for. And so the goal is not we're gonna hold everybody to this. This is what we're moving towards. And repentance is the name of the game. But for those who go, you know, I don't really want that. I don't, I don't really want following and faithfulness to Jesus. Then we go, then for the sake of the health of our community and your own journey and whatever story that you're on, that this, this isn't the community for you. And so that, as hard as it is to do that, I mean, this, as a pastor, I've had just a handful of times that's happened. And it's always some of the most hardest parts of being a pastor. Of naming and bringing clarity to the situation and helping them name for themselves exactly where it is. And most of the time, it doesn't come from us going, you're not allowed here anymore but us detailing the situations and they go, okay, I'm out. I, I, that, that you're right, that's not what I want. And then we go, okay, well, we're here. As soon as that is what you want, a genuine faith with Jesus that's walking underneath the submission of the scriptures as the word of God to us, then we are here and ready to go and so excited to have you back. 
But I, I want to end, and I did this intentionally with ourselves, because as important as that is, I think the, the major work for ourselves is not to look at one another, but, but to ask the questions of what's going on within, to both understand and avoid the trajectory of an empty faith within ourselves as well. To understand that within your heart and mine, that we currently live within the times of difficulty and enduring, that there is a natural drift in your heart and mine towards an empty faith. And so to understand, to know this is to keep a really close watch on our loves and to avoid and turn away from these things. And how do we do that? I found the most help in my own story and in talking to others as coming to terms with the symbiotic relationship between our affection, our love, and our action, and our attention. Your loves are shaped by what you give your attention to and what you do. You see, we tend to think of it in the other way, and though that is true, that what we love, we do and we give our attention to. Our loves are shaped by what we give our attention to and what we're doing. And so, Part of being really avoidant and keeping a close watch on my loves is asking, what am I doing and what am I giving my attention to as the way that I can best steward my heart around what's most vital for an enduring, lasting faith? And so just a couple little closing, really practical questions to ask. The first is regarding how our attention shapes our loves. Man, I, I don't know if there's a popular show streaming right now that isn't an outright celebration of the 19 things in this. Like, this is succession right here. This is, I mean, name the show that you want. This is it. And so here's the thing. I'm not coming to tell. I'm not, I'm, I'm not coming to, I'm coming just simply for you to ask the question. Not to answer this for you. What am I giving my attention to and what is it doing to me? You see, some of us grew up in the 90s where we had the kind of weird satanic panic um, where what was like, no, 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 with all of our you know, parents growing up or whatever is like Pokemon and Harry Potter and stuff like that. But somehow C.S. Lewis got in and like the Narnia books, but Harry Potter was kicked out. And, and that was the thing. So you had this whole like p- parents all worried about what are the shows that are shaping their children and is it like, you know, demonic stuff or whatever. I think what you could say, yeah, maybe for some of that stuff. I think verse, this, this passage right here would say, man, the things that we ought to be getting our attention to, not just for you know, kids, those of us that are parents, but ourselves, are what are the stories that we're living within and replaying? And how are they shaping our affection and love? And so once again, I come not to answer this for you, but for you to ask the question this week, just to audit. What are the, what are the shows that you're participating in? What are the stories that you're being shaped by? Are they moving you more towards the love of God and the love of the common good, the love of others, or away from it? So that's on how our attention might be shaping our affections. But next is our actions. Here's the thing. As weird as it sounds, because here you have appearance with the absence of power, there there is a vital work in a faithful, spirit, prayer-fulfilled way of utilizing actions, spiritual practices, disciplines, whatever language you want to use, as the means of rewiring our hearts. Some of you have read James K. Smith's book, You Are What You Love in Our Church Community, and this is, that's what that book is all about. He uses the language of liturgies. These are the things that we do that do something to us. And so what entering into some of these practices do is they reorder our loves, not by waiting and saying, love God more than pleasure, love God more than pleasure, love God more than pleasure, but finding and getting ourselves into rhythms and actions that actually do that shaping work within us. 
And so if you find yourself, love of pleasure is like me, I, I see that as the motivating drive, then, then genuinely, honestly, nobody talks about it in the church anymore, but fasting would be a genuine good spiritual practice for you to take upon. You just start with once every other week, a day, dinner to the next dinner, and you don't, just breakfast and lunch. And you allow that to do something within you where you begin to rewire yourself around pleasures being around the presence of God rather than, you know, we live in LA, some of the best food in the world. If for you, it's a love of money that the spirit is prompting you to do something with, it's just the simple giving to others, giving to generosity, truly parting with your resources, forcing yourself to budget, to live in a, a, a place of the opposite of the promise of money is I don't have any needs. I don't have to say no to anything. I can live, lo- like I can have, to, to, to live within a set budget, a, r- a rhythm of simplicity so I can be radically generous. And what you find is people don't do that because they love God more than money. They do that because they know how prone they are to loving God more than money. And they use the action, the practice, Practice the discipline to reshape their loves. And over time, they find what Jesus says to be true. It is more blessed, it's more happy is the word to give than to receive. For some of you that are finding the love of money, of saving, spending, or gaining, what would it look like for you to enter into a rhythm of simplicity? What is the baseline of what I need to have my daily needs met? And how could, what would it look like for me to live in such a radically generous way? Not because I love God more than money, not because I love others more than money, because I know I'm prone not to. For those of us that are prone to loving ourselves over and against others and over God, as, as I honestly, I feel like some people like laugh at me when I talk about serving within our Sunday gatherings as a starting point, as a starting point. That there is something about a regular rhythm of, of me on a Sunday showing up early, of me prioritizing and thinking about others, of whether that's coffee or tables or prep for work, or specifically, I mean, especially working within our kids' ministry. You want to let go of your sense of self and my needs and what I want. You hang out with a bunch of toddlers for, you know, a couple an hour. And what this does is as we begin to serve and we take delight in serving others, it turns our attention from the Medusa in the mirror and we begin to start actually loving people. So we don't, again, once again, do you see the, the, the difference here? We don't serve people because we love them. We identify our need and our desire to love people well. And so we serve trusting that that's when the spirit is gonna kickstart stuff within our heart. Similarly, loving good, again, once again, not as an abstract idea, but the good of others, the common good. You can find this in gathering on Sunday within our discipleship group, our neighborhood dinners, within our care ministry as needs arise. You wanna wanna love the the good of others? Start giving yourself for it. Trusting and believing that your love is gonna catch up. You see, in all of these, it's the same thing with marriage, with parenting, with your friendships and relationships. There are times and seasons and modes of life where you will get into the relationship, you will get into a timeline, and you will have to start doing the thing that used to be motivated by the love so that your love will catch back up and trusting and believing that it will. That is most mornings with my kids. That is, there's seasons of marriage, there's seasons of pastoring, there's seasons of friendship where, man, I'm gonna show up, I'm gonna give myself, I'm gonna empty myself, not because I want to, but because I want, because I do want to, but I'm not right now. And what you find is you give yourself into those rhythms is, is there's a work of the Spirit where the power of godliness begins to show up in new ways. And so some of you are waiting for you to want to serve, waiting for you to want to give, waiting for you to want to, you name the thing. 
And I'm telling you, it may never come. And you actually waiting for God to awaken something in your heart before you start loving him is actually the very problem Paul's getting at here. Seeing God as, as a tool in your own discovery as opposed to the one that you orbit around. And then finally, Paul ends with the love of God. Because the alternative to an empty faith is a full one. To be filled with the love of God is the very thing that we need. That's what will keep us from these things. And so we find and we enter into rhythms and ways of filling ourselves with the presence and the love of God. Whether that's prayer, not just through like praying for things, but just being in the presence of God and enjoying and delighting in him. Seeing time in the scripture, not for the sake of you know, an Instagram post or for you to share with someone, but just, and not even maybe to find application, but just to delight in who God is. Practicing Sabbath delight and just enjoying God's good creation in a moment, filling ourselves, maybe not literally because it's a small meal, but all the same, taking in and receiving and remembering who Jesus has been, his broken body and his shed blood, that we see the love of God igniting our own loves. You see, the greatest obstacle, as I've said over and again today, the greatest obstacle to an enduring faith is not out there, but it's in here. It is in our hearts and in our church. If you are going to make it for the long haul in a faithfulness, a walking with Jesus, the main thing that you need to be concerned about is what's going on right here. And once again, if we want to see collective continue and thrive and grow as a community, the primary thing that we need to be worried about is not something out there, but it's right in here. And so the great gift of God that we need then, if it's not out there but in here, the great gift of God that we need is I love in Paul's earlier letter, Romans chapter five, we find that all that we need for that endurance has already been given to us. It's already been made available. As Paul wrote in Romans chapter five, our endurance is sourced in God's love being poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Already has happened. Everything that you need for the life of endurance, everything that you need to overcome these vices and sin patterns, everything you need to reorder your love is presently poured into your heart for those of us who have made that prayer of following Jesus and sending the Spirit being at work within us. And so for those of us desiring a fuller, enduring life, one that is grounded in rightly ordered loves, two, like Han Solo in The Return of the Jedi, awaken from the frozen carbonite of selfishness and to receive the power of godliness, all you need has already been given to you through the reconciliation of what Jesus has done on his cross in his resurrection and the sending of his spirit. We live in the last days. We are in the time when the spirit has been poured out. And so though we may come great times of difficulty, that same time is the time when the spirit is present within your and I hearts, able to reorder and shape us into the people that we've been made and called to be where we can no longer sit content just being warmed by the fire of God's love, but consumed by it to have both the appearance and the power of godliness. And all it takes is the simple prayer. Come, Holy Spirit, reorder my loves, and in so doing, reorder my life. Let's pray.